Welcome to the Mainline Podcast. Week one is complete for all of college football. The Sooners take a win against UTEP, the final score 45-13. to I'm Adam Jocquez, your host, joined alongside my co-hosts, Tyler Burton and Corbin Polson. Guys, how are we feeling after a week one victory? Feel great, I think. Uh, we'll discuss that a little bit more. But guys, I was thinking earlier today, and maybe it's recency bias, but have we had a better week one just weekend of games in the recent past than what we had this weekend. It seemed like every hour there was a great game going on with a wild ending starting back to Thursday all the way toward last night. Clemson, Georgia state wasn't that great or Georgia tech wasn't that great, but up until, you know, Sunday night, there was a great game, at least one on every single day. And that it was, it was awesome. Yeah, it was a five-day stretch of really, really good football. Great storylines, great games from start to finish Thursday through Monday. And guys, We'll, we'll dive into the OU game here in just a second, but it, it just feels so good having college football back. I know that it's not going to be like week one every single time where you've got five straight days of football, but turning on the TV starting on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, um, it, it just feels right in the world with all the craziness that's going on. Uh, just a little sense of normalcy, and I'm just so happy college football is back. Um, feels good. Guys, what, what was your game of the weekend, just out of sheer curiosity? Uh, probably Pitt, West Virginia. That's I good. think that that ending was fantastic. Man, there were so many good ones. I mean, I didn't LSU get to see Florida a lot, State. but but App State UNC that was That's pretty solid. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it was tough. I went into Saturday thinking there aren't that many good games out there, but then it was still wild, just like college football always is. And um, it was it was an interesting week. You know, with Labor Day weekend, you get games all you know Thursday through Monday. And today, my wife says to me, this is our first uh, football season as a married couple. She says, is it always like this? <laughs> and I said, no, there's usually only like one game on Thursday. And sometimes it's not even worth watching. So like it's because I she on Thursday, I set up my my setup this year. I had five different screens going with five different games. And so um, I think she got a little worried, but it'll it'll get lesser and lesser and more centralized on Saturday. Just Before just wait till Maction. She may divorce you, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if Ball State doesn't cover, then that's right. <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, let's jump into to UTEP. OU gets a, a kind of an uneventful win, I guess you could say. There were a lot of good things, a lot of interesting things, but I think overall, a lot of fans just feeling pretty cautious. No one wants to get their hopes up too high because we've seen a good defense in early games in past seasons, and so people maybe they're just kind of cautiously optimistic about what they saw on Saturday. Corbin, I know you mentioned before we jumped on the recording, though, that you're starting to feel a little bit differently the further away we get from this game. Yeah, I think I was pretty pleased in the sense that if you compare it to last year, at least UTEP didn't have the ball with a chance to win at the end of the game. Okay, like Tulane did. So we've, we've come a long way in a sense that we did what we were supposed to do. And I want to take everything that we talk about in this pod with the grain of salt that everything was very vanilla on Saturday. We did nothing special offensively or defensively. But at the same time, I think the more that I've gotten away from Saturday, the more I look back and I was like, I wanted to see more, I think. And uh, we'll we'll dive into that a little bit more. But specifically on both sides of the line of scrimmage, I think I wanted to see more. And so, uh, yeah, we'll dive in that a little bit. But you know what, guys, at the end of the day, again, we did what we were supposed to do. It was uneventful. One thing that was nice to see, as hot and as humid as I heard that it was, didn't see many guys out with injuries, didn't see many guys out with cramps. Everybody stayed pretty healthy. And uh, you can't say the same for what uh, took place early in the season last year. So clearly, even if it's just year one, the strength conditioning is having its way. Yeah, for me, it was really kind of two parts within the same game. You know, OU kind of raced out to that 21 nothing lead, three straight, three straight scoring drives, uh, you know, backed up by two really, really good defensive possessions uh, by Brent Venables and Ted Roof's group. But then after it was 21 nothing, it kind of felt like the game changed. The offense was, you know, went, went through back-to-back three and outs. Uh, defense gave up 10 points, which, you know, not all of that was their fault. They were kind of forced into a couple different uh, bad situations. But uh, all in all, like you said, Corbin, it wasn't. It was a stress-free uh, opening game for for the Sooners, and we weren't, you know, on the edge of our seats, holding on for dear life, like we were a year ago against you uh, against Tulane. But I, I think that it was it was a perfect week one in a sense where you did a lot of really really good things. You took care of business. OU was favored by thirty one and a half. They covered, winning by thirty two. 
but also there was still a lot of meat on the bone. There's a lot of things that Brent Venables and the staff is going to be able to correct. They talked about it right, right after the game was over. Once they got into the post game, stripping it down to the to the studs and building this team back up going into Week Two against Kent State. So all in all, it, it was a really good performance for Oklahoma. A lot of really good things that I saw, um, and as we'll kind of dive into here in just a little bit, a few things that uh, left me wanting more uh, as we head into Week Two. For me, I saw a team that's right on schedule for where I expect them to be at the end of the year, which is, you know, based on my projections in a playoff game. And so I, you know, focus on the defense, of course. The offense was great. That's kind of what we've come to expect at OU. We know we have the players. We've got an offensive coordinator who statistically was better than Lincoln Riley was over the last couple of years. So I wasn't worried about that at all. Uh, You mentioned the offensive line. Yeah, I want things to improve there. I think they'll get there eventually. But defensively, I wanted to see where the technique and the fundamentals were. And I saw that time and time again on Saturday. I think there were very, very few missed tackles, uh, maybe like one or two here or there. But uh, a very vanilla defensive plan. And UTEP was good enough to get a few completions here and there. Longest pass of the day was only 24 yards. Longest rush of the day, eight yards. So no matter what they tried to do. Yeah, no, there was no bust. There was no a guy catching the ball, you know, wide open the flat and he had 10 yards before he ever got to anybody. There was none of that. There was always a defender right there. And even though they may have got the completion, that was it. Like they weren't gaining extra yards. Um, I know it would have made my dad proud. Um, I say that like he's not alive. He's still living. (laughs) But uh, as a football coach, uh, my dad was probably proud. I'm sure he was watching, but um, he would always teach, you know, first guy hits him low, second guy comes in high and just clocks him. And we saw that time and time again. And I love seeing that. So I want to see that continue uh, to happen, uh, you know, in future games. And the good thing is that UTEP was a bowl team last year. Kent State coming up this week, they were a bowl team last year. There's enough talent on both of these teams that you can't sleepwalk through it necessarily. You have to pay attention to actually get that uh, result that we got on Saturday. And so, you know, it may not be the most advantageous to see lots of different young guys playing time necessarily, but it's good enough to test those starters and make sure that they're, you know, uh, preparing properly and executing that. And so, you know, I think it's we're right on, on the trajectory that we need to be. I think it was a really good starting point. I mean, looking at Oklahoma's defense, like you said, Adam, very, very vanilla. Um, I think that they played zone coverage pretty much 98% of the time. We talked about the front seven, specifically Ethan Downs, Reggie Grimes, being able to generate pressure up front, get six sacks, nine tackles for loss, going against an offensive front that basically had anywhere from six to seven guys in protection of of the quarterback all throughout the game on Saturday. So it's not going to be like that week in and week out, especially once you get in the conference play. You're going to start seeing more one-on-one type scenarios for an R. Mason Thomas or Marcus Stripling, some of the guys out on the edge. But when you look at what Oklahoma was able to do defensively, you know, holding UTEP to 3.9 yards per play, winning the big play margin, eight plays to two, um, and anytime you win the turnover battle, you're going to put yourself in a really, really good position to win games, much less when you outrush the other team by over 240 yards. So um, very, very good performance. I liked what I saw out of Billy Bowman, especially at the safety position. It kind of felt like this was the first time in a while, which, you know, no you know, no disrespect to DTY or Pat Fields, but it almost kind of felt like watching that game, what Key Lawrence and Billy Bowman were able to do, it kind of felt like they were difference makers on the back end. They were making plays. They weren't not necessarily a liability, but anytime Billy Bowman made a play on the ball, it was close to the line of scrimmage or it was breaking up a pass or it was you know laying a pretty good hit on somebody, like you said, Adam. But there were just so many good things that I think you could take away from it. Jaden Davis making a tackle out in space. Um, when's the last time that we could consistently see an Oklahoma defensive back make a play out in one-on-one coverage? And like you said, Adam, my favorite part about the whole thing, and it was the biggest thing that I was looking forward to seeing from this group, it was gang tackling. Always, whenever you saw a UTEP player going to the ground, there were always three, four, five Oklahoma defenders in the area making that tackle. So that's going to pay huge dividends once we get into bigger competition against the Texases, the Baylors, K-States, OSUs of the world, uh, where it's 11 guys playing complete team football on that side of the ball. Tempo was something that I think was very noticed in that second quarter lull. And I think, I don't know, I have the stats in front of me, but OU was outgained in time of possession quite a bit. In fact, I think up until that final drive of the second half or the second quarter, the end of the first half there, Braden Willis caught a touchdown pass to send us to the locker room with a, a sizable lead. I think that final drive actually doubled OU's time of possession because we started focusing on running the ball. But do you guys have concerns around the tempo and pace of how fast that offense is and anything like that as far as how it affects the defense going forward? 
to, to me, it's going to be about the offense can be as fast as they want as long as the defense is getting stops. If the defense is not getting stops and you go up against a Kansas State, a Baylor, somebody who is an Iowa State known to kind of draw out the drives, nice and slow pace, this is their pace of game, then that puts so much more pressure on the offense to actually make every possession count because you know they're going to go pretty quick. So I think my concern is more for those contradicting style teams that are going to we're going to play against throughout the year. And there's not a ton of them, but of the ones that we are going to play – I think they're all pretty solid opponents. So it's really going to come down to the defense making sure that they're getting off the field in a timely manner to give the offense enough freedom to go do what they want to do, in my opinion. Yeah, I think against teams like Texas and even Oklahoma State, you know, two offenses that, you know, their success is predicated upon the big play, throwing the ball downfield, making big plays out in space. I don't think that you'll see too much um, – that goes hand in hand with Oklahoma's offensive tempo. But I do think you make a good point, Corbin. You know, once you go up against uh, a Baylor or a Kansas State where, you know, they want to grind out 12, 13, 14 play drives, if you get in a scenario where Oklahoma's offense, you know, they, they get a three and out and they're only on the field for 45 seconds and then you go, your defense is on the field for five, six, seven minutes and then, you know, you give up a touchdown, then the offense goes back out there and what if they're only on the field for three or four more plays? Then you're kind of putting your defense behind the eight ball. And that was something interesting that I thought Brent Venables talked about in his press conference today to where his philosophy is the what the offense does, that has no correlation with what the defense's responsibility is supposed to do. When the defense is out there, your job is to stop people and get them off the field. doesn't matter what the offense, the success or lack of success uh, is going on with Jeff Levy's group. But, no, I, I think that the tempo was is definitely something where when it's cooking, when it's firing on all cylinders, that puts so much pressure on that opposing team. It's not only just their defense, but their offense feels like, okay, we've got to get things going and get it going now in order to keep up with what Oklahoma's doing. I was curious about Jeff Levy's offenses paired with defenses and what the highest ranking any of those defenses uh, received when he was an offensive coordinator. So I went back and looked at the stats. At UCF, the defense was ranked 42nd, coached by Randy Shannon. Not a scrub. Uh, I, I think a lot of people maybe have a negative memory of him as the head coach at Miami, but certainly a good defensive coordinator. And then Ole Miss ranked 118th and 51st uh, for the two years he was offensive coordinator there, uh, DJ uh, Durkin uh, running those defenses. So um, I'm I'm curious to see, and you know, is there a ceiling maybe for a defense paired with a high-tempo Jeff Levy offense? Like, can we expect, not this year, but like in future years, a top 10, 15 defense? Maybe Jeff Levy's gone by then. I don't know. But I don't know. I just wonder if like that tempo is going to come back and really – um, you know, hurt the overall potential of the defense. But at the same time, it may not matter if you're just scoring all the time. I think it's going to be one of those things where it's good when it's good and it's bad when it's bad. And yeah. there may not be quite a middle ground. Um, but yeah, guys, I, I think, Adam, I know our next point here is to discuss the, the defensive side of the ball. Tyler, I think you made a great point that especially the defensive line going up against six and seven man protection, basically every single time that quarterback threw, went back to pass. On one hand, I still would like to have seen more pressure because there were one-on-one battles that could have been won at the line of scrimmage that were not won. But on the other hand, I think a majority of sacks that we saw were pretty much all covered sacks. Mm -hmm. And so it was one of those things that we haven't seen in the past where it was almost like if we did not get pressure on the quarterback, a big play was going to happen, whether in in the, typically in the past game. And so it was nice to see that those two things weren't necessarily locked at the hip. That we could we could you know have delayed pressure pressure not getting there as, as fast as we want it to, but the coverage was still holding down things on the back end. So I think overall I'm I'm fairly pleased with with the defensive side of the ball, but again, kind of going back to our initial point, a lot more to be desired as we continue to go forward. Yeah, we knew that interior defensive lineman was going to be the weak spot of this defense, and they did some really good things, especially in the running game. But mm-hmm. from a pass uh, rushing perspective, I was not super impressed there. Um, it was super hot. I was impressed that not a single guy was on the ground for injury or cramping that the entire game. Uh, kudos to strength and conditioning for that. But um, yeah, I do want to see a lot more from those interior guys. Um, and I think some of that will happen as Brent Venables decides, and I guess Ted Roof, he likes to give Ted Roof a ton of credit, but we know it's Brent Venables' defense by design uh, as he starts to bring some of those more blitz packages into play. And 
I, I think the stats that I think it was Bill Connolly put out said that OU did blitz quite a few times. I don't recall that very often, so I don't know what was considered a blitz necessarily um, by those stats because it was pretty vanilla. It was rushing yeah. for a lot. Um, so, yeah, well, and, uh, you and, still need to make pressure with just the four. Yeah, yeah but uh, Adam, I think that there's a lot remains to be seen. I mean, we can we can talk about the lack of pressure that was generated up the middle by the interior guys like a Jeffrey Johnson and Isaiah Coe, but – you know, until we get into a situation where we are facing better teams that are going to trust their five offensive linemen to hold up in protection uh, against Oklahoma, uh, you're not going to see that this weekend against Kent State. I think that it's going to be very similar to what we just saw against UTEP. You're going to see six, seven-man protections. Uh, you're going to see two tight end sets out there to basically give their quarterback as much time as possible to try to find a receiver downfield. But um, – if there's one thing that we do know about Venable's defense over the last 20 years, if he's not able to get pressure with four, I can promise you he's going to dial some stuff up, whether it's sending linebackers uh, you know, around the edge, sending a safety blitz up the middle. He's going to find ways to make the quarterback uncomfortable and generate some pressure uh, against that offensive line. So, we'll, again, I don't want to – don't want to make it seem like, you know, uh, hit the panic button. I mean, it's it's week one. They just won by 32 points. They took care of business. Let's see what they do at Kent State. And, guys, honestly, I'm afraid after watching Nebraska for the second week in a row in a dogfight against North Dakota State. Um, not even State. Or not North even Dakota. State. North Dakota. <laughs> I don't think we're going to learn much about this team until Kansas State in week four. We said that last year, though, yeah. too. We said hey, it last my, year. My get, we're gonna get their best in Lincoln. Yeah. Like, you're gonna, gonna get be a different best. team. You're gonna get the crowd's best. I'm not. I'm not knocking that. That's gonna be a crazy atmosphere in Lincoln, Nebraska, with, with Cornhusker fans. But at the end of the day, as Nebraska could play better than they have the last couple of weeks, but but Oklahoma should still that that should still be a double digit win for OU in Nebraska. We'll see. Um, let's hear first. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the offensive line. I think that was the most interesting thing that happened on that side of the ball. Some guys shuffling around. There's still some probably different guys that'll be playing here, mm-hmm. maybe this week, maybe next week against Nebraska. We'll see. But what were you guys' overall impressions there? You know, Adam, I, I kind of took a different approach um, with this game compared to the last couple of years. You know, right when the game's over, I like to get home, you know, watch the game over again, just kind of do a kind of do a deep dive into it. But this one, I actually listened to a couple of different podcasts, you know, Unofficial 40, um, listened to Gabe and Teddy kind of give their thoughts on it. And whenever I heard Gabe Eichert kind of talk about how disappointed he was yeah, in the left side of the offensive line, particularly left guard McCade Matower, I kind of made a focal point to – uh, watch every single play and watch what McKay did. And he's right, the left guard position, um, not Oklahoma's strong suit on Saturday, whether that was him battling an injury, uh, battling some type of illness. We've heard from media availability that that was not the case, you know, whether or not how truthful that was. You know, you don't want to give your opponent a leg up on what you're dealing with. But, um, you know, 259 rushing yards as a, as a team looks, looks really, really good on paper, but no doubt about it, there is a lot that is left to be desired with this offensive line group. And whether it's, you know, McKay Matower playing better, whether it's Savion Bird sliding into left guard, you know, is it going to make a huge difference? Yes. When Wanya Morris gets back and you can slide Anton Harrison back over to the left side. Um, again, it's game one. We'll see how they do in, uh, against Kent State this weekend. But left guard's a position that is a glaring weakness uh, when you look at the offensive line group as a whole. A word that we've heard a lot on other podcasts, and I know you guys have listened to it, is, is raw. It, and the whole thing felt a little raw. It wasn't that it was bad. It just wasn't up to the potential that, or to the expectation that we've gotten to learn under you know, Coach Biedenboe. And it goes back to the question that we've asked a few times on this podcast. Is, is the offensive line going to be ready on day one? Or are we continuing to look to, towards the Texas game for this to be a finished product? And we got our answer this week, and it's not ready on day one. And so, again, it, it, we're, we're basically shitting on a 32-point victory and 259 rushing yards, and that sounds harsh. But again, it, it's just there's so much more there to be desired. And we're either going to get there, or this could be a 3-4 to four loss team if they don't improve. Last week uh, on the podcast, I was kind of in the camp of, we can't wait till Texas to actually gel. We got to be good from day one. And after Saturday, I'm willing to give a little bit more grace because there was so much shuffling around on the the offensive line there. So 
Um, I'll give them another week to come out and show me something different. And I think it'll be interesting to see because we have more data points at that point. You know, how did OU compare rushing wise uh, to Washington against Kent State? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think Washington didn't have a single rusher over 50 yards against Kent State. They had a lot of guys get carries, of course, but you should still have at least one guy that does pretty good. Um, so I don't know if that's Washington not being that great, you know, mm-hmm. and not improved in the running game as they you know, we're pretty bad last year offensively, but uh, it'll be interesting to see the comparison there um, going forward. So mm-hmm. definitely need some work. Uh, but I guess that kind of brings us to, well, I, I, I you had a point there, but yeah, I want a few, a few more things I want to hit on here. Sure. Stock up or stock down on Dylan Gabriel? Stock up. I thought he threw the ball really, really well. Um, I think that I think that he showcased on Saturday um, that how comfortable he, he is in Jeff Levy's scheme. I think that one of the best parts about it, if, if you know, if you go back and watch, and Adam, you can speak to this as well, watching it live, it was how well he went about going through his progressions on each play. He knew exactly what his reads were, first, second, and third option. Uh, he throws a really, really good deep ball. I know a lot of people have been kind of talking about that first throw of the game, um, whether it was a wounded duck, how bad offline it was, but he got hit as soon as he threw the football, so we'll give him a pass on that. But I think – um, throws a really, really good deep ball, goes through his progressions. You can definitely tell he's in command of the offense when he's out there. And, guys, I kind of underestimated uh, his mobility, um, you know, not just moving around the pocket. But we all saw on the first drive of the game uh, on the on the run pass option, keeping the ball going around the side, making a defender miss. So give me a stock up. That was a really good, solid performance in front of, for Dylan Gabriel and what was, you know, the spring game was his biggest uh, crowd that he's ever played in front of. Uh, that only escalated this past Saturday in front of 83,000 and some change. Am I allowed to hold or do I have to pick one? Uh, I think hold says something. Yeah, I I would like, and this is not completely his fault. I would just like to see who his second go-to guy is. And I think it was Theo Weiss and Farouk. Farouk, we we mentioned Charleston Rambo in the same sentence as him a couple weeks ago. It's not clearly not the same situation, but he's got a ton of hype. And I think he had one catch for like five yards or something, but he got four targets. So... I don't know. Is it Theo Weiss? He kind of disappeared until like one drive where he got two catches in a row. And then Braden Willis had two touchdowns. And it's like, who is that second guy outside of Marvin Mims? But again, let's also remember, this is a very, very bland vanilla offensive game plan that was executed on Saturday. So I'm not quite ready to say this is Charleston Rambo 2.0 or we don't have a second option until we get into October at least. My, My concern with Gabriel guys is intermediate passes over the middle. I see that as a a glaring weakness because of his size and where we saw him throw the ball on Saturday. I get worried about that when we start talking about better competition, tighter windows that you're going to fit stuff into. Can he make those throws? Because of the few throws that he did make over the middle, sure, there was a couple of good ones, but especially on a couple of slants, they were behind. And the guys were open, he threw behind. And so I'm 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 not not as high as I once was on Dylan Gabriel because those throws over the middle are going to be important against better defenses. And I just wonder if that's in his repertoire or if we're simply looking towards out routes or long balls really the entire game. I would love to see a chart. I don't know if they do this for college, but a chart of the distribution of where I looked. I couldn't find one. Okay, because it, it in my memory, it was deep ball or like short behind the line of scrimmage screen type stuff. There yep. was not very much intermediate medium stuff, especially over the middle. It was few and far between. So we just didn't get a whole lot of opportunities to see that. But was there a reason? I, I mean, maybe it's not in the playbook necessarily. Yeah, that's know. fair. Uh, last thing I want to throw by you guys is RB one, the wrong guy. Ooh, okay. Think, so it's been uh, a little popular by some guys to kind of hate on Eric gray. And I, I hate on Eric gray. Like he's, he's fine, but I would just love to see him try to run through some, not, not like Trey Sermon or Samaj P. Ryan, but just like try to run through guys and let them try to arm tackle you. He's always trying to do these like wild jukes and like he ends up juking into another guy half the time. So I'd like them to, I don't know, just sometimes get downhill and go. He's not fast enough for some of the moves he makes I'm, is yeah. what I saw I'm, Saturday. I'm trying to find, I'm trying to figure out the right way to phrase this. Eric Gray is a really, really good running back. He is not. Six, 16 carries a game versus seven carries a game for the next guy better than everybody else in that running back room. In my personal opinion, again, I know it was a limited sample size from what we saw. 
I don't I, I don't think uh, I don't think Eric Gray does anything that Marcus Major or Javante Barnes can't do. Is this is this saving the tread on Major and Barnes? Maybe. I mean, if those if Marcus Major is the guy that you already want in the game to get that tough one or two yards down the goal line, doesn't that say something about who you probably want in the game in the fourth quarter on a tight situation? Well, I, I think case in point was what we saw on Saturday. They got inside the five yard line, first and goal. They gave it to Eric Gray, two straight carries. Yes, your offensive line has a huge part of that as well. But he couldn't make any headway. And then they throw Marcus Major in there, third and goal, and he runs two people over to get a touchdown. So I don't know if he's going to be strictly a short yardage type back once you get close to the goal line type of running back. But, I mean, I hate to hate on the guy. He had over 100 yards on 16 carries. So clearly he's doing some things right. But you can't tell me that when you watch Javante Barnes carry the football, you see that sudden burst of agility and speed. He's got something that other guys in that running back room do not. And I hope moving forward this weekend, going into Kent State, I hope that Javante Barnes is a guy that we can start to see get more carries as the as it, uh, as the game plays along. Because what you see Eric Gray do, as good as he is, he doesn't have elite top-end speed. He doesn't have the ability consist- to consistently take the pounding of running in between the tackles. So I think that you need a guy like a Marcus Major to, to you know, I think he fits the Jeff Lebby offense perfectly. So we'll see. It's game one. But let's even the carries out a little bit because he is not nine touches a game better uh, than running backs number two and three. That was one thing I thought was interesting, kind of throwing this question back to you guys. Does anybody on this team have top-end speed? Marvin looked faster, but outside of that, did anybody else blow you away with with speed? To me, no, and that could be a big issue. I don't think Eric Gray has top-end speed, even though he plays like he should, and I don't think Marcus Major has it. We've seen his speed in the past, and he has been caught behind. Is that a big I, missing I, piece? I hate to say it, but I think your two fastest running backs are both freshmen. And we didn't we, we know Gavin back. can fly. Yeah. 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 But but can he fly in game speed? Don't know. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. Again, Oklahoma won by thirty two points. They're one and zero. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it was a much different story last year when we played a Tulane team that was probably similar or not much better at all than this UTEP team. So. Uh, what did you, what did you guys, there. what did, and this is my last little thing on this. What did you guys think of the way that Levy closed out the game? You know, it kind of, it kind of felt like we got used to over the course of the Lincoln Riley era. We got almost kind of pass happy, especially late in the second halves where you had an opportunity to close the game out. Uh, you know, whether you were up seven, 10, 14 points, you know, midway through the fourth quarter and Lincoln Riley kind of kept his foot on the gas being aggressive, trying to throw the football. Whereas Levy, I think going back and look, looking at the game cast, Oh, you finished the game with 13 straight running plays, keeping the clock moving, you know, grinding things out against your opponent, putting the game away. Uh, I really liked what I saw uh, out of Jeff Flavian. I think that that's something that OU hopefully can continue to to do as the season goes on. I was just calling for booty and uh, didn't get it. So I give it an F for the way he finished that game. A lot of general booty merchandise in the crowd from what I saw (laughs) in my section. Good Lord. But yeah. yeah. Let's uh, let's dive into Kent State a little bit. Yeah, uh, Kent State again going to be, in my opinion, it's going to be very similar to what we saw in Week One against UTEP um, in terms of competition. Kent State early preseason favorite to win the MAC conference this year, so solid football team all the way around. Um, although on the, in Week One they did go on the road out to Washington, fall forty-five to twenty to the Huskies. Quarterback Michael Penix Jr. for the Huskies threw for three forty-five and four touchdowns, while Washington racked up one hundred thirty-two yards on the ground at just three point two yards per carry. So pretty good run defense that we saw. By the Golden Flashes, um, Kent State on offense, they did turn it over three times, two of which came off interceptions by their starting quarterback, Colin Schley. Um, guys, just kind of you know early thoughts. I'm not going to say that I've watched a ton of Kent State film because I obviously haven't, but you go back, you watch a handful of quarters of this team play, Colin Schley, the starting quarterback. Average arm, somewhat mobile. Um, I call him a poor man's Trevor Knight just from the limited tape that I've seen of this kid. They like to play with tempo on offense, and they actually spread the carries around uh, to to their running backs, something you don't see too often in football anymore. Uh, And against Washington on Saturday, four different Kent State running backs uh, had over eight carries, so they do a lot of subbing in and out to keep the fresh legs on the field, a lot of tempo. But again, this is going to be an opportunity where – Watching OU, how they play against this tempo, I really don't think you're going to learn a whole lot because they've been going up against Jeff Levy's offense uh, throughout the last nine months. So 
When you look at this team on paper, Kent State really doesn't have anything from a personnel standpoint that's a that's a challenge Oklahoma. So if OU takes care of business, they play good, uh, sound, fundamental football. Um, Kent State should be no problem for this group whatsoever. I've seen a little bit of Kent State. Uh, I had Marquez Cooper on my college fantasy football team last year. He's the running back. He's the name to know out of the backfield there. And uh, was good enough that I drafted him again this year. Now, I didn't start him last week, and I'm not going to start him this week because uh, I just don't think he's going to have that much success. Um, so I, I'm interested to see if OU can not necessarily repeat the the rushing perf- defense performance they had against UTEP, but have something in the same neighborhood. Um, you know, Kent State doesn't have the offensive linemen to – to play with, you know, even what we think might be mediocre or just average, you know, interior defensive lineman here at OU. So I want to see that. I want to see a little bit more pass rush, uh, like we mentioned. Uh, Colin Schley only got sacked once against Washington, and Washington has some good defensive players. So um, I didn't make it uh, last long enough to stay up to watch that game. I, I checked out probably the first quarter, but, um, you know, like you mentioned with Colin Schley, he's got a little bit of mobility. So um, that's probably a little bit more than what Gavin Hardison brought from UTEP. So, I think it's a little bit bigger of a test for the OU defense. Um, scales up another step. You know, can they take down an offense that has had some more success? Um, you know, you've got Dustin Cephas at the receiver position that's pretty solid. You got Marquez Cooper. Those are all Mac type guys, and they do play with a lot of tempo. So that'll be interesting to see effectively. You know how that um, mm-hmm. you know, changes things for our offense as well. I sound like a broken record in comparison to what we discussed last week. Win the turnover game. Keep Gabriel upright you're going to dominate this game. Um, and if anything less than a 30-something point game, probably a little bit of a disappointment. Mm-hmm. I don't view these two teams as overly different. Um, and so I think the, re- the result should be pretty similar. Uh, let's just hope, you know, we don't have pictures of the empty student section since this is a night game. That would be the one difference, I think, between this last Saturday. At all. I don't know. It, I get it was really hot. I mean, this, like, it, it's hot for everybody. The it's only a, way that the students are going to make it through that is if they completely change their lifestyle and don't drink beforehand. Cause like, you're just not going to last. It's way too hot out there. This is nothing new though. Right. Yeah. It happens at least once a year. <laughs> Multiple just times with the a year. Heat. Like people don't act surprised. Like it gets hot. If you drink a lot before the game, you know, about but, water. You're but not that's the last thing though, is we've there. seen, we've seen 11 AM kicks in late October and November where the student section isn't full and it's not hot. No. And so it's embarrassing. It's, it's a, it's a culture thing to me. It's not a weather thing. It's a culture thing. Yeah. And it just kind of is what it is. And yeah, I, if something doesn't change of the big names in the sec, like we'll kind of be a laughing stock when it comes to our fan base. But here's the, here's the thing guys. I really don't know. I can't put my finger quite how you fix something like this because I mean, student ticket prices are dirt cheap. They've got really, really good seat locations. I mean, you get six, seven home games a year. Uh, this is a top five college football program of all time. And you would think, you, uh, game one of the Brent Venables era, you would think that students would want to, you know, show up, be loud. But, guys, it's – I really don't know how you solve it. To, to me, this this fan base – and, again, I don't want to paint this, uh, you know, paint this broad bu- brush against everybody. I know that there are some students that – are diehard fans like we were that were in attendance every single game from start to finish. But I mean, it's, it's got, it's people that prioritize, you know, going to, going to frat parties, going to the bars, you know, let's, let's get every, let's get all dolled up so that we can go take a picture that way. Everybody knows that, that we were there on social media, but it, it is, it is a absolute joke what the OU students are when it, when it comes to, you know, fan attendance and creating a hostile home atmosphere. They I don't think do it goes, part. It goes so much beyond the students, though, because I remember going to OU games, middle school and high school, and I thought it was normal to stand at football games. That's what I thought. And then I remember getting yelled at people behind me sitting down, wanting us to sit down. And so it goes well beyond the students. This is an entire an entire fan base problem because I, I, I understand being older in age and wanting to sit down and enjoy a football game. That's not what this is. It's not. Norman should be a hostile environment and it should be people getting on their feet ready to get loud. And if that means you stand for the entire game, then damn it, stand for the entire game. Like it is it is a home atmosphere. It has the ability to completely change the outcome of a game if done the right way. We've seen that. It's it's just it's not that. And and I and I take that with a grain of salt because we're 
I know a lot of people compared us to like the Florida crowd. Okay, well, the Florida game was at night. It was against number seven to kick off the year. Of course, that stadium is going to be packed the whole time and pretty raucous the whole time. I do think at our best, when things are going right for a big matchup, I think our crowd's pretty good. But if it's not that, this just kind of is what it is. And so the question is, is as we transition to the SEC, does that natural naturally change because the schedule is going to improve you you would hope so right i mean i don't know adam Adam, you and i were there oh you jumped out to a 21 nothing lead 10 minutes into the game students left i mean i've been in that stadium where students leave at the start of the fourth quarter leave at halftime that student section was half empty with about six minutes left in the second quarter like it was it's embarrassing and and you know and we we saw it against good teams in in two possession games in like 2019 against iowa state students were leaving. Um, and it is a cultural thing. I, I'll be curious to see, you know, does this happen again in mid October when the weather's amazing outside? You will. Um, but yeah, it, I, it I is don't a think cult- you're going to have to wait. You, you're going to get yeah. good weather this Saturday. It's a night game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it definitely is a cultural thing. Like the way I approach the game is totally different than I think the way a lot of students, and other fans approach the game. You know, I approach it as I have six opportunities to see this team mm-hmm. in Norman every year. You know, I'm going to prepare for heat. I'm going to prepare for the worst and expect the worst. And when I get there and it's 95, you know, I'm going to think this is what I was expecting. I'm prepared for it. You know, I hydrated beforehand. I spent time in the shade. I wasn't acting, you know, totally foolishly. I was prepared for those types of elements to go through that. And it's doable. Um, You know, it's doable. You just have to have the culture and the the prior the prioritization to actually make it happen uh, yeah it makes me sound like an old to say all that but well i mean d- don't drink yeah. six or eight beers beforehand and go in there in in the middle of a hundred degree heat day like what do you expect to happen and i don't want this to you know come across as you know we're labeling the entire fan base i mean north end zone that's about as die hard and ruckus of a part of the fan base as you're going to get but i mean I know that it was hot on Saturday, and I know that the medics and you know the EMT people were very, very busy taking care of fans all across the stadium. But students specifically, you're 18 to 22 years old. You get six of these opportunities a year. It's a top five program in America. Brent Venable's first game. Show up. Stay the full 60 fucking minutes and be, be proud of your team. Create a home atmosphere that is hostile for opponents to want to come in and play or not want to come in and play against. I hate to bring them up. But Texas A&M, I know it's the world's largest cult. That student section is louder than all 85,000 of our fans combined. And we're in for a huge uh, rude awakening once we get to the SEC. That's my I, told you guys, I told you guys before, Fog Allen Fieldhouse with 18,000 people is louder than our football stadium. Because mm-hmm. there's a culture of that place is a difference maker. Yeah. And I don't know where we've lost that. Because we've had our moments. We're spoiled. We're spoiled. There's lots of fan bases that are spoiled, though. True. And, and we see it every Saturday. You know, I can't say that we're eyeing every student section in the country from other programs every Saturday like we do our own. So it's like it's worse because we know it better type of deal. But but you're right. Like, wh- when did it change? Cause I remember like back in 08 and everything and I get everybody remembers the jump around game and all that stuff. But like, I don't think our crowd would do that right now. Is, is that bad? Is that false? This makes me sound so old, but like, is it social media and like taking that picture and then getting off to the parties? Like that's exactly possibly. what it is. I feel, I, I, I think that's part of it. <laughs> I feel like such an old, like grandpa saying that, but I, I don't know. I mean, well, and, I mean, how much does the how much does the in game stuff have to come into play here? It's shit. I so to, so I, if if we are in a if we're in a, a period where the picture and being a part of something at a certain time is the most important thing, then the in game atmosphere has to change to make that better. It's better should, to be in the stadium than to go to the bar. You should that's, block that's all social yes. media apps inside the stadium. <laughs> well, I, I think that, again, when you've got Campus Corner just a couple of blocks away, you've got social media, people that want to go in there, take their picture from the student section. Hi, I've got the field in the background. I'm here, Mom and Dad. Everybody liked my picture. Now I can go over to O'Connell's or Logie's uh, and, and you know drink in 72 degrees and watch the game on TV. I don't know if priorities have changed. I mean, obviously, not everybody is a is a diehard football fan like we are. But Adam, you make a great point. Three hundred and fifty two days a year, you get six Saturdays where you can go out there and cheer for your team and actually feel like you're a part of something outside of yourself. And it's 
it's sad, but but guys, it it's not like this is anything new. It's it's been going on for decades. But has it gotten worse? Oh, I think that's that's the big question. It's definitely gotten worse. And so, I think that the in-game fan experience has a lot to do with that. I tweeted it out during the game. I it was again, the game was out of hand, but you're going into the fourth quarter and we've got uh Toby Keith karaoke for the crowd to sing along getting ready for the fourth quarter. I mean, you know, Adam, case in point, why are Oklahoma City Thunder games so much fun to go to, even if the product on the court is not great? It's because there's always something going on that keeps the fan engaged. It it keeps everybody moving, and the basketball is just it's the, it, it's the reason for the, for everybody showing up to the arena. But there's a lot of outside entertainment that makes the fan experience yeah. so much more enjoyable That's- than just the basketball. That's true. Uh, you guys know Garrett Ebersole, right? Is that his name? Yes. It, it's, yeah. it's not a it's not a DJ's fault. It's not the music choice or anything like that. Well, you just you just knocked Toby Keith karaoke there, but like it was interesting to see. I think was that a, was a pre-planned segment because they had the graphics yeah, and I all mean, that. He, I mean, he's the super fan. He gives a lot of money. Um, but like it was interesting because he created a thread on Twitter on I think it was Sunday where people were he he said like you know let me know what your request for songs are and pretty much every song that people requested he said played that one played that one played that one so it's funny that that is something another complaint that people say is like music is like all these old classic rocks but like every song that people wanted he had already played was the Toby Keith thing an attempt to like get a Wisconsin everybody singing along deal it, was that an attempt to do that I mean it didn't it didn't work. You know don't what's use, funny about don't use red solo cup to do it though. <laughs> Tyler, did you see Toby Keith on the on the video board when the team was supposed to be running out of the locker yes. room? Yes. <laughs> that was hilarious. Oh. If you weren't at the game, and Corbin, maybe you didn't know this, but mm-hmm. you know, they played the intro video. Usually, like right after the intro video, the fireworks sure. are going off, the team's running out on the field. Well, that didn't happen. The fireworks went off. And nobody was there running Slight out. Slight five minute delay. <laughs> yeah, so How the camera... Tyler, we've worked that. How is it <laughs> I know, possible to be I that know. far off? <laughs> Brent Venables must have been going long on his pregame speech because the camera flipped to the, t- the the hallway back there. And you see Toby Keith and he's just sitting there looking at his iPhone. He's on, he's on his phone. <laughs> he's just looking at it and it's like super awkward. It's just staying on him for like 20 <laughs> seconds. And then like two minutes later, they flip back to that camera and the team is you know, walking down the hallway. Now, if they had timed that right and flipped the camera to the team walking out of the hallway and had like dramatic music, it would have been absolutely. Epic. It would absolutely. Have been epic. Maybe they'll get that right this Saturday, but it was so funny to see Toby Keith there. Just I, sitting there. I just have a hard time. And, and, and I say this, I say this with a grain of salt because obviously I'm in a city that just won like a world championship, mm-hmm. but there are very few things more fun than an avalanche game that when the game's in hand, every single time they play all the small things by blink One Eighty Two. Very easy sign, song. Sign me up. Everybody's singing it because everybody's in a great mood. It's awesome. How do you how do you get that to happen though? Like, what song do you pick? How do you get people to buy in? Play one till they start freaking singing. They're gonna sing. Everybody's pro- like majority of people in that stadium at least had a beer. It may be hot, but any time that you hear like a classic song, you kind of just want to sing. And so it has to happen organically, and you just have to freaking like find it. And once you find it, you got to do it again and again and again mm-hmm. and again. And so it's ju- it's going to be trial and error. It could be an entire game of whoever's up there on the mix board playing a song and seeing which one the crowd sings to most. And then all of a sudden you've got a tradition. That may be as simple as it gets. I think, I think what you need, though, is you need to do it at the right game at the right time. If sure. you do it against Kent State, it may not catch – on you don't try it again if I think it you works it, at kent state it'll work against anybody but i think what you need is you need to do it at like for example after bedlam or in fourth quarter bedlam OU's up by four touchdowns you play some song that's like you know sealing the the nail in the coffin everyone sings along later on everyone talks about singing that song in that game against oklahoma state where you won by four touchdowns and then you do it every game going forward but I, i'll agree with you guys it is a hard thing to mm-hmm. find because you've got the the fan base is so different. The demographics are so different. You know, student section might love one thing. All the small things, Blink-182. You know, 85-year-old Margaret may not like Blink-182 playing. Maybe I don't she think wants, I know that song. You just need the majority. 
And that's hey, all you need. Majority. Put the yeah. words up on the big screen if you no, have to. Don't do that. Maybe don't off that. on the that's side, like they, like they do the national anthem. Too Put them up on the a, side. I need a dot bouncing on every word. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and then in like a clap hand deal, you know. But we, yeah. but we do have to agree that there are some things that have to be done. And again, there's people that are getting paid a lot of money, a lot, a lot more money than we are to figure this stuff out. But you got to figure out a way to to make the fan engagement so much better. Well, I think we've kind of moved off the whole Kent State game. I don't think there's a whole lot to discuss there anyway. So let's talk about some other games that happened. Um, Just overall perspective. One of them was a great atmosphere, West Virginia at Pitt. Um, But we saw several Big 12 teams uh, playing some meaningful games. Uh, West Virginia, of course, uh, was there. Oklahoma State had a decent matchup against Central Michigan uh, that same Mm -hmm. night. TCU, uh, in your backyard, Corbin, uh, got a W against the Buffs. And then there were several other teams that played FCS teams or Louisiana Monroe. But what were your overall impressions as far as uh, other Big 12 teams? Well, first off, how dare you for not putting Kansas on this list? A team that Bloody finally Bloody. does, finally does what it's supposed to do to a bad team. And we can't they even covered, give them any Adam. respect. They covered. <laughs> what was it, like 41 to 7? 56 to 10 was, over Tennessee yeah, it was, Tech. it was big. Amazing. Is Kansas yeah. back? How? <laughs> how sh- <laughs> All right, I'll get serious. Though. I'll get serious though. Uh, West Virginia. I'm not sure how good Pitt is, and so I'm going to yeah. leave a little bit of unknown of like, was that really impressive? Or are we going to look back and be like, both those teams pretty much stink? I don't know. Um, Oklahoma State, pretty obvious. Not last year's defense. Holy cow! Were they? Get- if if that is a I'm quarter waiting. longer, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. You can't. You can't wait. It was freaking Central Michigan, and they were going up and down the field to the point where the game was like, this isn't over. They had to bring Spencer Sanders back in. Yeah, if that goes one more quarter, Central Michigan has a chance to win that game. It's crazy. I, yeah, but I get the you. You got to understand the letdown. I mean, they were up thirty points in the second half. They kind of took their foot off the it, gas. Did you I, say this against Tulane last year? Oh, I completely agree. But I'm also not going to say that uh, just based off of one half of football. I'm not going to say that Oklahoma State has taken a huge step back. Which it's a step back. At, at, it's, at I mean, time, it is a step back. But let's see how they do a, this week. A big I reason mean, the momentum turned in that game was because Central Michigan made a few critical, you know, coaching decisions and mistakes that allowed Oklahoma State to get up pretty big, and yeah. then they weathered that storm. And Central Michigan basically evened things back out to where it was initially. So yeah. here's my issue, though: if you, if you're going to call in a guy to be your new DC and have him run somebody else's system, that never, ever, ever works. <laughs> ever. And so that's exactly what Oklahoma State's trying to do, and it's not going to work. You have to let a guy run his own system. Have to. Yeah. It almost kind of – they got worse as the game went on. I mean, starting things but, out. Yep. I, I Spencer mean, Sanders looked good. He, he was tossing it all over the place. Yeah. He did. He did. Uh, Can you pick TCU? it? TCU? <laughs> TCU uh, is pretty obvious. Uh, after one game, if you can stop the run, you're going to beat them. Because that is yeah. all they did against the Buffs was just that, run it down their throat. I think Duggan in like the last quarter and a half, I think he threw the ball, what, four four times over the last 15, 18 Crazy. minutes of football. And he's the so, guy for the next couple of weeks because uh, Chandler Morse is out. Yeah, he's out. Yeah. So. I think Texas Tech is another one. Again, I know it was Murray State, but a 63-10 to 10 win. You know, quarterback Tyler Schuff got hurt. Uh, in comes Donovan Smith, your backup, who I think a lot of people would agree – has the has the highest ceiling out of anybody in that quarterback room. He comes in fresh off the bench, 14 of 16, 221 yards, and throws four touchdowns. So Texas Tech has got a big one this upcoming weekend at home against Houston. They're favored by three points. We'll see if that's on anybody's betting card. But really, guys, it, it, this was a scenario where, to me, outside of West Virginia, everybody else kind of took care of business against some really, really poor teams. And I think that this will be a week uh, that, that we'll find out. We'll definitely find out about Texas Baylor going on the road to BYU, West Virginia, Kansas, kind of weird to have a conference matchup in week two, but and, and Texas tech taking on Houston. That's going to be a sneaky, good matchup that uh, I'm going to be tuned in to check out. Yeah. Let's hit Texas it. was real quiet. Iowa really state quiet. going to uh, Sioux city. That's going to be another one as well. Hunter Deckers. Let, we just, let's, let's talk about that for just a quick second. Iowa won seven to three <laughs> and they beat, what was it? South Dakota state because they had two safeties. The defense outscored the offense and the defense did not score a touchdown. Worse. Think about that. Think Worse. About that. Both. I think there's been what, two or three um, games. Uh, uh, what is that called? The, where they play in the cornfield, the baseball game, uh, field, oh, of field of dreams. Yeah. Field yeah. of dreams. Games. All of them outscored them. All of them. Baseball teams, outscoring football teams, that's the most Big Ten thing ever. But, guys, let's transition to 
beers and bets. Uh, we're getting very off topic here a lot, which is great. Um, yeah, rounding up last week, Tyler, four and one. Love to see it. How about that? A strong start. Myself, four and one as well. Adam, just behind us at two, two and one. Um, who wants to start this week? Winners um, go first, right? Yeah, I was going to say. Go ahead, Tyler. Yeah, go ahead, Tyler. Well, I was so close. If LSU had any resemblance of a special team, special teams unit, it would have been five. And it. But uh, pick number one for me, I'm staying out in the Pac-12 country. USC going on the road to take on the Cardinal of Stanford, the fighting David Shaw's. I've made my opinion on David Shaw very clear on this podcast. USC only favored by nine points. Kind seems of, strange. Seems very, very strange. But I'm going to take Caleb Williams, Jordan Addison, um, and, and Lincoln Riley. I, I've kind of – I've kind of made this decision where I think for the most part this year, I'm going to take USC in a lot of games because that'll be the first time that those coaches will go against a Lincoln Riley type of offense. So give me USC to cover nine points in prime time against Stanford on Saturday night. I'm going to take the same thing. Easy. It's eight and a half, Adam. Yep. Adam, what okay. uh, what are you doing? Harvard versus Dartmouth or something? What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going with uh, Tennessee. They're on the road at Pitt. Uh, we saw a great environment from Pitt, but that is not the norm uh, for the Panthers. And I think with the Steelers starting up the next day, I don't know if that's a home game for the Steelers or not. Probably doesn't matter. I just think it'll be revert back to the normal for the Panthers uh, in that home game against Tennessee. Tennessee, a six and a half point favorite. I think... Pitt may score 35 points, but I think Tennessee could score 50. I just think Josh Heupel's offense is pretty elite right now. Mm -hmm. Tyler, back to you. Uh, Hawaii traveling on the road to the big house uh, at Michigan. Over-under on this one is set at 67 points. Um, Guys, the spread uh, Corbin, what's the spread on this one? Has it has it changed? Fifty one points, I think. Last okay, this is, the, this, is the, this is the this is the this is the. I mean, Bandy beat him by sixty something. I think so. <laughs> well, this is the largest spread in Michigan football history, and uh, I guess Jim Harbaugh he's going with the two quarterback system. Sophomore JJ McCarthy is going to get the start for the Wolverines. Guys, Hawaii so far this year has given up over two hundred and seventy yards a game on the ground. That's just shy of eight yards a carry. So I expect Michigan to run the football and run a long long way so for i'm not taking i'm not touching the spread on this one but i think in a game where michigan's going to grind out the clock they're going to win by a huge margin i'm going to take i'm going to take the under in this one under 67 Mm. points and what's going to be a blowout for the fighting khakis that might be a smart under yeah uh i'm going to go with the team who has just flat out put up points in one of the most dramatic games uh we had last weekend give me north carolina georgia state North Carolina can score, and they can't stop a damn soul. Uh, give me the over 67 and a half. That line last week was in the 50s, and teams scored over 100. They doubled the the, the spread there. So, uh, yeah, over 67 and a half is what I got. Uh, give me the over. I'm going to a game that I think you guys will probably have later. I'm taking Bama minus 11 and a half in the first half at Texas. Georgia was kind of the darling of the first week and what they did to Oregon. And I think Bama wants to show what they can do against Texas. So I think they're coming out strong in the first half. Uh, Adam, I'm going to stay with that same game, but I'm, I'm actually taking a total uh, spread on this one. Alabama favored by 20 points going on the road to Austin guys. I kind of went back and forth on this one uh, for, for the last 48 hours or so. I think watching Texas, you look at the skill talent, that they have, and they've got a few good pieces on the defensive side of the football, particularly on the front seven. I think that Texas has the skill talent to give Alabama a game for at least three quarters or so. So I kind of went back and forth. Texas should be able to cover this, but at the end of the day, it's Saban against a former assistant. Everybody's been talking about it all offseason. We hear it every single year. Texas, the Antichrist in uh, in uh, Quinn Ewers, even though he doesn't have a car anymore, got towed during the game. Um, I I just don't see how Alabama doesn't run away with this thing. I think it might be close for a half. Maybe I should stay on the 11, minus 11 first half line, Adam. That might be the way to go. But I think Alabama's going to kick the shit out of Texas and Austin on Saturday morning. And Texas fans get brought back down to earth just a little bit. So give me the tide, minus 20 against the Horns. I'm going to go up to Stillwater, and I think this is Vegas probably playing a trick on me because I think they're probably feeling the same way you do, Tyler, about Oklahoma State's defense. The Arizona State, Oklahoma State over 58. Um, I think both these teams can score. 
that seems way too good to be true. So I wouldn't be shocked if somehow that finds a way under. Um, but I'm going to do that over 58 in Stillwater. I've got Western Michigan minus six and a half at Ball State. <laughs> there it <laughs> little, is. Little, little, there little it is. A little action. I liked what Western Michigan was able to do against Michigan State on Friday night. They've got a nice one-two combo in the backfield. Ball State, not exactly the class of the MAC. So uh, go Broncos. Sound reasoning. Go ahead, Tyler. Yep. Uh, let me get back on track here. Uh, pick pick number four for me. I'm going down to ACC territory, South Beach, Southern Miss going on the road to take on the Hurricanes. Hurricanes favored by 26 points. Mario Cristobal's offense led by Tyler Van Dyke put up 70 in the opener. And, guys, I think that they're going to keep this thing rolling in their final tune-up before they go on the road next weekend to College Station to take on Texas A&M. Uh, I know that Southern Miss is running back Frank Gore Jr. That's a lot of – if you're a football fan, you know that name. Frank Gore's son, he put up uh, just under 200 yards last week and uh, two touchdowns against Liberty. Uh, nice two run one. defense. Nice two run one. defense, Adam. Uh, but <laughs> my, Miami is going to smother the Golden Eagles on Saturday, so give me Miami and the points. I'm going to go out to SEC country here. Uh, really like what I saw out of Arkansas last weekend. Uh, didn't love what I saw out of South Carolina. That said, my one loss last weekend was because Lincoln Dam Riley couldn't find the end zone right before half. Uh, so former Sooner has uh, wronged me once. Link, uh, Spencer Rattler could do the same this week. Give me Arkansas minus eight. That line seems too good to be true. That's an 11 a.m. kickoff, so I'll have a chance Ooh. to watch that one. I'm curious to see how Rattler looks. Didn't have the greatest stat line in week one. I am taking a page out of Corbin's playbook from last year, betting against one of the worst FBS teams out there, and that is Charlotte, the 49ers, named after (laughs) not 1749 or 1849, but 1949. Uh, They're playing actually host to Maryland at home. Kind of an odd matchup there. Big 10 team going to a team that I I don't know if they're in the AAC yet, but uh, they will be shortly. Maryland, a 27-point favorite. I think that they should be able to handle a team in Charlotte who lost to William and Mary this past weekend. Nice. Nice. Uh, last pick for me, guys. I'm going to I'm gonna put this on the board in real time. I can't believe I'm going to bet on this team for the second week in a row. It's burned me the last couple of years. But uh, we are going to stay right here in Norman, Oklahoma. Kent State coming to Norman, take on Oklahoma. Over-under on this one is set at 71 points. Guys, it, it almost feels sickening betting the under on an OU football game, but I'm going to I'm gonna take the under in this one. I think that this is going to be a matchup where, uh, very similar to what we saw against UTEP, uh, it's going to be very vanilla on both sides of the football. Oklahoma's going to shut down Kent State. Uh, we'll, we'll do a score prediction here in a minute. But, again, I think that Oklahoma is going to do just enough. We'll continue to see that offensive line gel. Hopefully we see a little bit more production from some of the other running backs in that room. Dylan Gabriel is going to get his. So, uh, I think that this is going to be a blowout win for Oklahoma, but I think that OU's defense is going to play well enough to where they hold Kent State to just enough points to where this game stays under. I'm really torn here between two lines. Um, I don't love either. You want my advice? <sighs> nope, not really. Uh, <laughs> week two is tough because you have all the it, overreactions it, to week one. It is, and so many lines shot up in comparison to what they were last weekend. This makes no sense. I'm going to take App State plus 19 in College Station. I thought about it. Thought about it. App State plus 19 in College Station. My other option was picking Kansas plus 13 and a half, but I couldn't quite do that. (laughs) They're not quite back yet. They're not back yet. (laughs) You won last year betting against Kansas. I know, which is, it was, was, you ever had that moment where it's a really battle of your moral compass that was what I've been dealing with all day, trying to figure out if I was going to bet for Kansas because it goes against everything I've ever known. Oh, yep. Uh, I guess I've got the last pick of the evening, and I texted you guys earlier. I was like, can I bet the under on Iowa State at Iowa? It's only 40 and a half. It is, it's pretty low, but we saw a total of 10 points in the uh, Hawkeyes opener last week. I'm going to actually zig when everyone's zagging. I'm taking the over on 40 and a half. I, it's, a, it's a rivalry game. It's something that they are more desperate. I don't think that you're going to see the conservative play out of Iowa's opponent in this particular scenario. So defensive touchdowns, special teams, touchdowns, whatever. I just think there's going to be a little bit of scoring and just saying, hey, it seems almost too good to be to be true. Kind of one of those lines from Vegas. I'm taking the over there. Guys, I know this game is at Iowa and I know the 
domination by one side in this particular rivalry as of late, but is the right team favored? In this it doesn't matchup? matter in this game. How many times have Iowa State been favored and they drop the ball? Nope. Iowa deserves to be favored until they lose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it's a good point. Three, three and a half points at home, yeah. so it's pretty even in Vegas. It's a pick em. It's essentially yeah. a pick em, So, yeah. All right, well, guys, guys, score predictions. Score prediction. Go ahead, Tyler. Yeah, score prediction and one thing you're going to be looking for. Uh, I'm going to see, since I'm taking the under 71 in this matchup, I'm going to go OU 55, Kent State 10 uh, for a total of 65. My one thing I'm going to be looking for, uh, the three J's. Jaron Kanick, Justin Harrington, Javante Barnes. I want to see more of all three, and hopefully we'll get a chance to do so on Saturday at 6 o'clock inside Gaylord Family Oklahoma Memorial Stadium. My uh, total is pretty similar. I've got OU 49, Kent State 17. thing I'm most interested in seeing, some late-night booty. Wow. All right. Uh <laughs> 45-17 for me. We're all in the same wheelhouse there. Um, I want to feel better about both sides of the line. I really do. This needs to be a dominating performance. I want to see more pressure on the quarterback more consistently, even if there is major protection. Got to be better. Over under nine minutes and 12 seconds in the third quarter, student section starts clearing out. That's That needs to start being a weekly prop bet. For OU home games, what point in the game does the student section start to empty out? So I'd say, I'd say halftime. Say halftime. Okay, fair point. Miss the we'll stick around since it's going to be cooler. Well, you would certainly we hope sh- so. We shall see. But- well, that's a wrap for us this evening. Appreciate everyone listening. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at the Mainline Pod. Find us on YouTube by searching the Mainline Podcast, and we will see everyone again next week for another episode of the Mainline Podcast.